This morning, we'll start with verse 10, but in order to dive into this next section in Mark chapter 14, I think it would be beneficial for us to get a bit of a running head start. There was a few things that we weren't able to tie up last Sunday, a few observations that we want to make. So let's go back to verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, and she poured it on Jesus' head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves. And they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Now, though Mark doesn't give us the name for this woman, John's gospel provides us her identity. She's Mary of Bethany, sister of Martha and Lazarus, friend of Jesus. And we noted that Mary was a lover of Christ. Jesus had said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and as we see here, with all your soul. Mary came and in a beautiful display worshiped Jesus. We noted last Sunday what she gave. Mary comes and gives an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. No doubt this was the most precious, expensive thing that Mary owned, her most expensive earthly possession. And she gives it to Jesus. She pours it out on his head and it, and it runs down his face and his body reaching down to his feet. She pours it all out, about a pound according to John. But note that though this was costly, more than likely the most expensive thing that she owned, this was not her real gift. For Mary's real gift was her worship. We also noted how Mary gave. We're told she broke the flask and she poured it out on his head. Mary, her action here, this demonstration, her worship, it, it engaged with no concern for cultural norms. Mary was not concerned that feet washing was only the act of a slave, forbidden of a Jewish slave. Mary, washing, according to John, his feet, with her hair and her tears. She acted with no concern for culture. Mary's act had no concern for what others thought because as we'll see, in the face of criticism, Mary kept the object of her worship in sight, Jesus. Mary's act had no concern for personal cost. We also noted why Mary gave. We're told by Jesus that she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to what? It's interesting. To anoint Jesus' body for burial. It's fascinating. 
The Pharisees should have known what Jesus was up to, presenting himself to Israel. They should have known the scriptures that the Messiah would have had to die to pay for the sins of the world, but they didn't. They ignored it. The disciples should have known, the apostles. Jesus, on three occasions, tells them why he's going to Jerusalem, but they ignored the truth as well. It seems as though in the week of passion, this most celebrated, famous week in human history, the only other person but Jesus who knew what was really happening was Mary of Bethany. She came, and this entire act of worship was why? It was because she knew that Jesus would die. There is no doubt that Mary worshiped Jesus for who he was. There's no doubt that Mary worshiped Jesus for what he had already done in her life, resurrecting her brother from the dead. It's worship worthy. But Mary was worshiping above and beyond everything else for what Jesus was about to do. Jesus was about to pay for her sins, to give her salvation. And she recognized this. She knew this and she worshiped him for it. We also noted that her worship, worshiping in expectancy for what Jesus was about to do, it was worship with faith. And when we worship, we should worship Jesus, yes, for who he is, and yes, for what he's done, but we should come and we should worship him in faith, knowing that whatever I'm facing, he is able to overcome. Now, Jesus' response to Mary's act of worship we weren't able to get to it last week, so let's make a few observations. First, we're told that Jesus defended her worship. Here they were criticizing her. And imagine the scene. Imagine this incredible, beautiful demonstration of Mary. This sincere, honest demonstration. Taking the most precious thing that she owes and giving it to Jesus, and she's crying, and she's weeping, and she's washing his feet with her hair. And, and these guys, these knuckleheads, these disciples are there, and they have the gall, the audacity to stand and criticize her. They're scoffing at her. How dare them? Where did they have the right to criticize her worship? Jesus, he interjects. More likely, as the act itself is still being commenced, he turns to these guys, and I'm sure there was fire in his eyes. As he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? What gives you the right to trouble her? It's sad that often people's worship of Jesus... We expect it in some regards to be criticized by the world. That they don't get it. That they don't understand our love for Jesus. A man we can't see, but a man that we know. A man that we follow. The man that we're willing to lay down our lives for. People sometimes don't get it, and they criticize it. If you've ever been in the secular world, you know that if you're genuine and sincere about your faith, it will be met by criticism. But we also see that sometimes our worship is criticized by our own. Isn't it sad when so often our worship is criticized by other churches or criticized by some in our midst? 
in Jesus, we see that he defended her worship. He stood in the gap. He said, leave her alone. We're also, we can note that he enjoyed her worship. Jesus says, she has done a good work for me. This word good, it literally means beautiful or precious or excellent. She has done, Jesus sums up her action as being beautiful, precious. And he says it's for me. Since Mary's act was for Jesus and not the disciples, Jesus and Jesus alone was the only one who had the right to evaluate what she had done. She wasn't doing it for the other people there. She was doing it for him. And Jesus evaluates it. He sums it up. He defines it as precious, as beautiful, as being excellent. But note that Mary's worship, it was done for him. Mary worshiped for Jesus. Mary didn't worship for herself. She didn't worship for the attention of others. Mary worshiped with a singular focus of Jesus. The sole focus of her worship was birthed and bringing pleasure to Jesus, not an emotional high for herself. I think sometimes within our culture, a worship culture, a worship church culture, that so often our motivation for worship is the emotional experience, the spiritual high that we often get. Now, that's not a negative thing, but it should be the byproduct of our motivation for coming. You see, our motivation for worshiping is not so I can get goosebumps running down my spine or I can get tinglies as I raise my hands to Jesus. That can be a byproduct of my worship, but I should sing with abandonment for one reason, to bring him glory and honor. Now what's awesome is in bringing him glory and honor and the experience of worshiping and exalting the name above all names and the act of experiencing a connection with Jesus, there's a residual byproduct that these are times where we can lighten the load, that we can lay down our cares, that we can engage Jesus in a spiritual and emotional way, but our motivation, Mary's motivation, was not what she would get from the experience, but rather glorifying the object of her worship, that being Jesus. So Jesus defends her, he enjoys her worship. We're told that he accepted her worship. Jesus. He comments that she has done what she could. I love this. I really do. This word could, it means had or held or possessed. Literally, what she had. She has done what she had, what she could, what she possessed, she gave. Note that Jesus evaluated Mary's worship with the knowledge of what she had to give. I'm encouraged by that. Because it tells me that Jesus is not a lover. Jesus is not the individual who's expecting more from us than what we're actually good for. Have you been in a relationship before 
where the girl had an expectation for you that you were never going to be able to live up to? You know, they tell you in marriage counseling, and it's a, it's a prudent and wise exhortation, that if you're not willing to marry the other person for who they are then, then don't marry them. Sometimes we make the mistake, we go into marriage expecting that person to now become refined, or expecting that person to get their act together, or expecting that now that we're married, that person will become what I ultimately really want them to be. And when they never live up to that, when they never become that, when the rough edges, you're not able to jackhammer out, you become disgruntled. And it's not fair. You see, the person that you marry, you should be willing to live with that person if they never change, if they are who they are. Now, ultimately, it's great because Jesus transforms us and there's glorious things that happen. But you know, if you're in a relationship with someone that's expecting more than what you're able, it's frustrating, isn't it? It's tiresome. It drags on you. And what I love about Jesus is when I come and I worship him, he's not evaluating me based upon what I don't have to give. He's evaluating me exactly as I am. And he'll take what I can give in the moment. We also should note that he celebrated her worship. He says, assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her, or literally something preserved for remembrance. Jesus is telling Mary and telling the disciples who were being critical of her action that what she had done would be something, A, that he would never forget, which is most important, but would also be something that would be exalted as an example to others. And Mary, Mary of Bethany, has been exalted as a wonderful example for you and for I for how we should love God with all our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. Now, the sad reality of our story. Though Mary, her worship was sincere, and Jesus accepted that worship and delighted in it, there were naysayers. Not everyone in our scene was pleased with what she had done. Verse 4, we're told, but there were some who were indignant, filled with indignation. And they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Now, that's a false assumption, that it was wasted. It was given to Jesus and he accepted it. But they said it might have been sold, this gives us their logic, for more than 300 denarii. Adjusted for inflation, it's about 40 grand. And given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, though Mark, as he did with Mary, leaves the questioner here nameless, John provides an important detail. For our questioner, the ringleader here, is none other than Judas Iscariot. Now, the essence of his question, it seems to present a noble concern for the poor. I mean, honestly, that amount of money, selling this oil, a year's wage, it could do a lot of good. However, John, he provides us an additional insight behind Judas's question. Because on the surface, you can say, okay, I'm kind of with you, Judas. Like, that makes sense. Like, it seems like an exorbitant 
offering that could have been handled a little bit you know, with more wisdom, a little bit more prudence. It could have done a lot of good, could have fed a lot of mouths, met a lot of needs. But we're told in John 12, verse 6, that he said this, Judas said this, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, Judas, Judas does something very shrewd. Judas masks his hidden agenda under the guise of noble concern. Judas stands up. He's like, this is being wasted. There's a better way that we can use this resource to accomplish greater ministry than this. And the disciples are looking at Judas and they're thinking, that makes sense. We're with you. Which is also interesting because Judas, he shows some leadership ability to the point that he offers a suggestion, the guys rally around him. But he's masking his desire to steal the money. He's looking at this ointment and he's thinking, you know what I could get for that? Now I can't come right out and say that. So he says, well, we could sell it and provide resources for the poor. And the guys are like, yeah, that sounds good. The other 11 disciples follow right behind Judas. They rally around his leadership, unaware of his true motivation. We're told that they, Judas asked a question, but they criticized her sharply. Now, I want to make an observation. As Christians, we should love everyone, but vet everything. Whenever you decide to join or rally behind a cause, no matter how noble, sincere, forthcoming the leader of that social movement might appear to be, you should always examine the hidden motivations that might possibly be at work. You see, the reality is that in this story, there was a genuine disconnect between the leader and those following the leader. I'm sure that the disciples were genuine in their desire to care for the poor, but Judas, the leader, was only interested in lining his pockets with cash. So what does Judas do? And galvanizing the other disciples to his cause, caring for the poor, Judas was able to provide himself cover for his own selfish desires and hidden motivations stealing the funds. This is why when it comes to following anyone, I love everyone, but I bet everything. When people come to the church and have some great ministry idea, something that you could, you know, put in a certain amount of money, you can invest into it, and you'll see this return of ministry opportunities and, and, and leads within the community, it might on the surface seem no, noble, partner with us for the soup kitchen or, 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 or feeding uh, these people or, or clothing the, the homeless or doing a, a mission in Africa. And, and they come and with all these lofty, grand ideas. And on the surface, it's all noble. And I love them. And I want to support them. But my job is to vet them. At your church, before we give a dime to anyone, we vet them to ensure what? that this noble concern isn't a disguise for some selfish motivation. 
as wise. Now you can divide Jesus' response to these men's criticism in two sections. First, Jesus rebukes the disciples. Why? They embarrassed Mary. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Jesus is making it clear. It's not our place to judge another person's offering. And as we mentioned, Mary's offering was for Jesus. So Jesus and Jesus alone would decide what the best utilization of this gift should or shouldn't be. And yet, there's another half to Jesus' response here. Knowing that the day would come when the disciples would be responsible for allocating resources for ministry. That day was soon approaching. Jesus, okay, he rebukes them for embarrassing Mary, but then he follows it up by providing them an important lesson on leadership. Jesus says, for you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me, you do not always have. Now the truth The truth is that as a church, the allocation of resources should be evaluated based upon what's most necessary to fulfilling the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. And I want to make a side point that's sometimes difficult to to understand, but, but is important to realize. When it comes to being a pastor or being in church leadership, being an elder, being a deacon, It's very easy to evaluate ministry based upon good ministry and bad ministry. I mean, it's easy to often be able to pinpoint things that just aren't working and say, we've got to change that. Like, we've got to fix that. We've got to either get rid of it or totally revamp it. It's a lot harder when you evaluate, not based upon what's good and bad, but instead when you evaluate upon what's good, but what's necessary. You see, as a church, you can have a lot of good things happening, but if they don't fit within the mission and vision of the church, those good things pull resources from the necessary things. Now, in regards to our story, there was a question that the disciples failed to consider. They evaluated this gift. They're like, this is a poor utilization of the funds. We should have cared for the poor, but, but they didn't think. Why had Jesus come? Not just to Jerusalem, but to the world. Jesus had come not to eliminate global poverty or to champion racial, economic, and gender equality. Jesus had not come to eradicate disease or pestilence, to abolish the tyranny of the the elect onto the masses. Jesus had not come to put an end to war. He had not come to put an end to slavery. Jesus had come for what purpose? He had come to die so he could save mankind from their sins. That was his mission. And in the moment, with that as Jesus' mission, what was the best utilization of the funds? Was the best utilization for this pricey ointment preparing his body for burial, which was Mary of Bethany's perspective, Or was it caring for the poor, which was the disciples' perspective? They're observing the evaluation of what this pricey ointment should be used for. And Jesus is like, I've come to die. This is for my burial. That's more important in the moment. Not that caring for the poor isn't good. But in the moment, it's not about good and bad. It's instead about what's good. That's good. But that's not necessary right now. 
because I'm going to get arrested the next night and die for the sins of the world. The core issue here within our story is that the disciples, they focused on ministry, which was okay, but they lost sight of the mission. They looked at what should be done with this ointment with a very short-sighted perspective of the main thing. I'm afraid that the church today has fallen into the same flawed approach of the disciples. And we're only mentioning this, we're only introducing and taking time covering this particular idea because you need to know where your church comes from when we make decisions about how we allocate resources and utilize funds. The methodology, the biblical methodology that we see within Jesus that then dictates how we handle certain things. Because I think the church has adopted this flawed approach, the short-sighted approach of the disciples. In many ways, this is not a blanketed statement on everyone, but in many ways, the church has become more interested in righting social wrongs and tackling social injustices, i.e. feeding the poor, instead of fulfilling the mission Jesus has called us to accomplish, exalting the crucified Christ within the world. And when this happens, two things occur. The church becomes ineffective and distracted. First, the church becomes ineffective when it emphasizes social issues because the only remedy to social issues or the problems facing the world is not us. It's actually the second coming of Jesus. Jesus came first to die for the sins of the world. He will come again and what will he do? He'll take care of poverty. He'll adjust all the, the, the social inequalities that exist. He will do away with corrupt government. Jesus will restore the earth. Jesus will handle all of these things. The ultimate fulfillment of them is in us. It's Jesus. I mean, as a matter of fact, he kind of makes a radical statement here. He tells them, the poor you will always have. Which means what? As much money as you throw at solving poverty, the only remedy to poverty will be when Jesus returns. You will always have the poor. Now we'll get into that kind of a concept specifically in one of our B-sides. But the church becomes ineffective. Like we can't actually solve the problems. That will come with Jesus. Secondly, the church becomes distracted from fulfilling our singular mission when we allow noble initiatives to become our chief ambition. Let me say this again, because this is kind of the linchpin. The church becomes distracted from fulfilling our singular mission when we allow noble initiatives to become our chief ambition. Please don't get me wrong. I am not saying, and at this point some of you are thinking it, but I am not saying that social issues or causes can't and shouldn't be incorporated into the program of the church. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't care for the homeless or feed the poor or go into the third world to try to, to bring vaccines and, and try to eliminate disease, that these aren't noble things that we shouldn't be active concerning. We should incorporate them within the church. However, they should always exist 
as a means to fulfilling the mission that Jesus has called us to accomplish. Jesus says, go into the world and do what? Feed the poor? No, make disciples of the nations. Now, can feeding the poor be a way that we can get into certain nations to make disciples? Absolutely. But sadly, feeding the poor has become more important than making disciples. Let me run through a series of just simple examples. What is the point if the church helps people overcome substance addiction only to see the individual remain addicted to his flesh? What's the point if the church frees a slave only to see the individual remain in the powerful grasp of spiritual slavery or bondage to sin? What is the point if the church eliminates disease in the third world only to see individuals infected with the deadly virus, the most devastating virus of all, that being sin? What is the point if the church champions social justice and equality only to see individuals remain destined for a future judgment? What is the point if the church eradicates sexually perverse behavior only to see individuals enter hell straight and monogamous? Good job. What is the point if the church ends global hunger only to see individuals continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Though every one of these aims is a noble ambition, a noble initiative, something we should do. If these things become our chief ambition, we've tragically addressed a person's temporary condition without ever addressing their deeper spiritual need, salvation. The poor you will always have. But me? You're losing sight. You've got things out of whack. Do you know that historically the church has always proved most effective when our focus was not tackling social ills, but instead seeing men transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when the church's main priority was evangelizing the lost to see dead men become alive, knowing that when the heart of man is transformed by the gospel, that it yields a transforming effect on society, that all of these social concerns that we have The ultimate remedy is not dealing with the concern, but seeing a heart transformed, knowing that when a heart is transformed, equality takes care of itself. All these other social concerns, like, like even like, (laughs) if you really understand and have been transformed by Jesus, to me, it provides the most accurate motivation for caring for the earth, to be a conservationist. Why? Because Jesus has given us the planet to take care of that my relationship with Jesus instills a higher level of accountability. I should be taking care of things. Drives me nuts when I see someone with, you know, a fish sticker on the back of their car throwing litter out onto the street. It's like, you have totally lost sight of Jesus. The biggest social issue facing the first century, it was the oppression of people by Rome. As a matter of fact, one in four human beings were slaves to this oppressive empire. 
And yet, how often does Jesus speak out concerning this injustice? He never does. As, as a matter of fact, how often does Paul and Peter, the early church fathers, emphasize the abolishment of slavery in their early writings? They don't. As a matter of fact, they take the opposite approach. Paul actually encourages slaves to be the best slave you can be to your master, to submit. Now, why take that approach? Well, because they knew that the most important remedy, what would ultimately change the Roman Empire, what would ultimately right the wrongs, is when man, when his heart was transformed, when Jesus gripped the lives of the people within the empire, that real change would happen. It's interesting. They never address any of these social issues in their writings or through their teachings, but within 200 years, the gospel brought down the Roman Empire. There was no army on the planet that could challenge Rome. Yet Jesus and the transformation that he brought in people's lives, it did what no army could do. If you study, and we could provide example, example, example after example, if you study the ultimate abolishment of slavery during the English colonial days, during the slave trade, slave market, late 1800s, you will note that what ultimately ended that entire practice was directly connected to several incredible Holy Spirit-infused revivals within Great Britain. The culture within Great Britain became transformed. Jesus gripped hearts and lives, and then they looked around and they said, we can't be doing this anymore. Change came from a revival. Now, here's my point. A church that addresses social issues as a means for exalting Jesus is a church effective in ministry because it's a church that's keeping the priority of Jesus' mission to redeem the sinner emphasized above everything else. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he saw it how he might conveniently betray him. Then Judas, the phraseology here within the Greek construction is designed to draw an immediate contrast to Mary, then Judas. Following this incredible demonstration of love for Jesus, we see a dastardly betrayal of Jesus initiated by Judas Iscariot, then Judas, who was one of the 12. Now, Mark includes this to try to bring shock to his readers. Now, we're looking at this story from the hindsight of, of 2020. We know how it all ends. We know the, the principal players. But if you're reading this for the first time, the whole way that Mark is setting this up is it should be a jolt to your system. You're reading through all of this. You know because Jesus has said a betrayal's coming. Dark days are ahead. You don't really know how it's all gonna happen. And then you get to this verse and we're told, then Judas, one of the 12. And you're like, ah! you're shocked. It intends to grip you. No, it couldn't be. One of his 12? 
One of the men that he chose to be part of his crew is going to betray him. It jumps, it shocks, it pulls you in. But we should consider Judas. Why would he betray Jesus? Some have speculated. Judas was so embarrassed by this entire episode, this scene of activity that took place there and his father's home. Simon the leper, according to John, is the father of Judas. So this is his house. He's chilling. He jumps up, takes some leadership, offers this suggestion, we should take the ointment. Jesus shoots him down in front of his dad. No doubt it bruised his ego. It hit him hard. And the result, people speculate, is that in an act of impulse, fit of anger, he acted upon inclinations that already existed by betraying Jesus. Some have speculated that Judas was simply the victim of a cruel predestination. That Judas doesn't want to do this. But these divine cosmic forces are dragging him along to this destiny he doesn't want, but that he will ultimately fulfill. That Judas is simply a pawn. That he's a puppet. And that God is ultimately pulling the strings. The problem with this is that we'll observe that Jesus provides Judas ample opportunities to repent and turn away from the plan that he had made here with the chief priests. Others have speculated that Judas was simply trying to provoke Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. That Judas was sick and tired of Jesus dragging his feet. That it was time for Jesus to lead this revolt, this revolution. That he had not joined the ranks of Jesus to be a patsy, to be a pawn, for Jesus to die. That he was there for the money, and he knew he could get more money if Jesus was king. And this is not happening like Judas wants it to. And so in his mind, he's thinking that I'll do this so that these, these guards will come to arrest Jesus and he'll be forced into action. And we'll pull out sword and blade. We'll fight back. People will rally and it'll finally happen. Now, this deed, it clearly backfired when Jesus didn't put up a fight, didn't resist, and instead was sentenced to execution. It could pr provide an explanation why Judas then was so stricken with grief that he would kill himself. Though any of these theories, and probably a combination of all of them, provide reasoning why Judas did what he did, it should be pointed out that when it was all said and done, Judas's big problem is that he had an evil deep within himself. As Jesus' followers are dropping by the wayside, one by one by one, turning and following from him, Jesus makes an interesting comment in John chapter 6, verse 70. Several months before this, Jesus answered and said to them, I did not, I did not, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And then John says he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. It would appear that even when Jesus chose Judas to be one of his 12, 
there already existed an evil inclination within his heart. So we should conclude this morning with this question. So if Jesus chose Judas, knowing that Judas was evil, that Jesus allowed Judas to hang out, to be part of the group, to associate with his ministry, to walk and live and eat and sleep. That if Jesus allowed Judas, befriended Judas, loved Judas, knowing that he was evil, why would he do such a thing? (laughs) I'm glad that he did such a thing. Because if Jesus could still go through so much energy and so much effort to reach out to Judas, then it shows the great lengths that he'll go to reach out to you and to myself. Or that child, that prodigal, or that spouse, or that friend, or that neighbor, or that person that you think in your mind, that person could never. I mean, if there's a person that could never be saved or would never come to Jesus or Jesus would never want to associate with, like if there's anybody, it's that dude. Or Judas. And yet, Jesus loves And he cares that Jesus desires for all men to come into salvation. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, whoever believes, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus could demonstrate his love in such a radical way for Judas... At this point, we describe and define anyone who like betrays another in a deep way, we call them a Judas because of this dude. If Jesus could love him, then there's no one out of his reach. And so, Father, Lord, with that thought, 